So my hope, my prayer for today's program is that everyone will stay uh, engaged and stick with me uh, once you see what's on the screen. Uh, first of all, there's all sorts of folks that are all, all excited and let's look at Greek and write stuff and do things like that. And other folks are like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to be following all of that. It is my intention to bring everyone along because this program today uh, has been prompted by a question that I have been asking of the other side in the current disputes going on um, regarding the doctrine of inseparable operations. Not the biblical concept of that, the unity of the divine persons, of uh, the divine will, things like that, but the uh, Thomistically oriented uh, definition both of simplicity and uh, inseparable operations, uh, which flows from, my assertion is, flows from a concern uh, that it finds its origin in Aristotle's views of God, and Thomas was not able to uh, fully extricate those things, and therefore does not flow from Scripture, but flows from a philosophical system. And in the assertion that in inseparable operations that the divine persons when they act outside of the internal relationships of begettal begotten spiration which again are uh speculative categories it's not like there's a verse that says these things and this is supposed to be what we are are learning about and things like that, but it's a, a, a way of differentiating between the divine persons in eternity past. When acting outside of, what, not, not ad intra, but ad extra, that every divine action is an action of all divine persons. And so far that I've even had some very clearly say that um, you cannot distinguish between the divine persons by any of the actions they, they do externally. And it's just so painfully obvious that this is a philosophical conclusion, not a biblical conclusion. No, no one even pretends to try to found it in Scripture. Um, maybe one or two people have tried to go, well, you know, John 5, uh, you know, the, the, all that, but none of that even comes close overthrowing the fact that we have in some places in Scripture, and there are only a certain number of places where we are given insight into the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, and they are some of my favorite texts of Scripture. I've spoken on these issues many, many times. I, um, most of you who have heard me speak on these things know I speak of you know drawing aside the veil of eternity and things like this where we are given these tremendous opportunities of literally hearing inter-divine communication. I mean, we don't deserve any of that, but we, but we have it in Scripture. And <clears throat> so the question that I have been asking of the other side is, are there not, biblically, places where the divine persons do things that are specifically unique to them? in relationship to the other divine persons. And the example that I, one of the examples that I've put forward 
is in Philippians chapter 2, in the Carmen Christi, right at the beginning of the hymn to Christ as to God, it is said that the Son, in contemplating, he gives consideration to his equality with God the Father and concludes it is not harpagmon, something to be held on to at all costs, but the adversative of Allah. Instead, he empties himself by taking the form of a servant, by being made enlightened men. And this clearly is something that only the Son is doing. That the, the Father cannot contemplate the Father's equality with the Father. Okay? That's not possible. And when the Spirit contemplates his equality with the Father or the Son, that's different than the Son contemplating his equality with the Father, right? And so this is a personal action on the part of the Son. And it's right there in the pages of Scripture. What happened was a couple days ago, a fellow by the name of J.E. Smith, Doherty Hylomorph uh, on Twitter, objected to the question. And I have attempted, as best as I possibly can, to explain to Mr. Smith and to Josh Neemi, I think that's, that's what I've been told the pronunciation is. Sorry, Josh, if it's Neemi or something like that, but I'm sure you have to provide pronunciation all the time with uh, spelling that like that. Um, both gentlemen have raised an objection, and, and I will confess that I have um, struggled because I've explained it clearly, it isn't a disputable thing. It's not even a debatable thing. This is basic grammar 101. Um, but they're not getting it. And I don't quite get it. Um, it, it. It is possible that we have here a situation where a commitment to a traditional perspective is keeping brothers from seeing basic linguistic reality that's right in front of them. I would hope that's not the case because certainly it, many times outside the Mormon temple in Salt Lake or uh, in, in other situations, uh, I've encountered individuals who could take the plain meaning of words and turn them upside down because of their commitment to a theological perspective. And I hope that's not what we, we have here. But I decided it was really necessary um, to put this to rest so we can get back to the real question. Because I haven't had it. This is the only answer that's been given is to try to say that, it's, that the son really wasn't contemplating his equality with the father and concluding that it was not something to be held on to at all costs, but rather he humbled himself and entered into human existence. Um, I've not been getting much as far as response on these things. And in my opinion, the uh, imbalanced swing into Thomistically defined classical theology. We're all, we're all classical theologians on a basic definition of this. None of us are open theists and none of us are Socinians and any of the rest of this stuff. What we have are 
is an issue of balance. And what's most concerning for me is an issue of whether we will maintain a balance between the ultimate supremacy of Scripture and confessions and creeds, or whether those creeds and confessions are going to become the lens through which Scripture itself is to be interpreted, and that will eventually lead to a fundamental epistemological collapse for those who go that direction. And so I think that answering these objections without just dismissing the meaning of the words uh, is something that's necessary for the other side. And I, I, I don't know if they can really do it without exposing themselves and exposing the imbalance that we are most concerned about. And so my hope is we will, uh, from doing this, uh, be able to take a step in the right direction. So let's, um, let's go to uh, what, what I, let me explain really quickly here. I'll be using the big board. And boy, that light right there is just, I can barely see what's on the board. Um, we'll get around it, but I have to play with that one. Anyway, um, I, what I have up here is I have, of course, our regular accordance uh, Greek from Philippians chapter 2. And then what I did is I have a uh, book in my uh, library. It's in, it's in accordance. I think I have a similar book in Logos that has the sentence diagramming. Sentence diagramming, if I'm recalling correctly, we did, yeah, we did in second year Greek. <laughs> but you got to realize, um, in sec- second year Greek, I, th- I think we had just gotten my, the compact portable. And that means there was no such thing as, as accordance or logos or anything like that at all. So when I did, I remember we did a section of James um, and uh, you literally had to take pieces of paper and use cellophane tape to tape them together and you, you drew your sentence diagrams that way and then tried to fold them up and turn them into Dr. Baird. It was, <laughs> it was the olden days uh, back then. But uh, now you can, you can get these sentence diagrams and diagramming is a discipline Diagramming is something that you are doing every time you read any language, but you're doing it subconsciously in your mind. And the problem is sometimes you mess up, and that's what leads to misunderstandings. So I have here uh, the diagram of the text over here, and so we'll be making connections between the two. But just to start, and then we'll go into it, what I'm saying is... I don't remember what color we've got here. Uh, We'll go with this one for now. Uh, What I'm saying is, have this mind, think this way, have this thinking in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, eternally existing in the form of God, did not consider his equality with God the Father, he did not consider it harpagman, something to be grasped, something to be held on to at all costs, but adversative of Allah, he uk and Allah, not, not this, but that, but emptied himself, 
reflexive pronoun, emptied himself by uh, modal circumstantial participles, by taking on the form of servant, by being made in the likeness of men. And so the point is that hegesata is an action of the Son. The object of that is a infinitival phrase, which is why you have taught in front of it, considered his equality with God, he did not consider it to be a harpagmon, something to be held on to at all costs. But the point is, the son engaged right there, right there, he engaged in consideration of his equality with God the Father. Now, the word father isn't there, but I... I can demonstrate that that's the contextual meaning if we need to go there. So, the son is, it, is considering his equality with God the Father. Now, he concludes that it is not something to be held on to at all costs, but instead empties himself. These are all divine actions. The point is, that is something that the son alone can do. And if your theological system is not big enough for a fragment of a hymn in the early church, um, that's your problem. And that's the problem with your system. But there isn't any question that that's what's going on here. Now, um, let me, I just did that really fast. Uh, Don't save. Now let's go back and let me read you uh, the words of J.E. Smith, and then we'll start going a little bit more slowly through the text. In response to what I had said, he said, Paul is telling us that the Son did not regard slash consider. He tells us about an action that the Son did not perform. So I ask, how do you validly move from Paul's statement about what the Son did not do to a conclusion about what the Son did do? You're not answering the direct questions that had helped clarify things, though. You've quoted, then considered the equality with God, as if that contradicted the position of your opponents. I'm asking how you define from that anything positive about the Son's actions for which your opponent's position couldn't account. I think the only way that would contradict a position is if the position asserted the contrary, that is, the son did consider or regard. And in quoting the section above, you left off the adverb. For some reason, Mr. Smith thinks negative particles are adverbs. Maybe he was taught to put them in a broader category like that or something like that. I don't know. I've not left it off anywhere. Uh, As we will see, it's not saying what Mr. Smith seems to think. So, he tells us about an action that the son did not consider. That the son did not perform. Sorry, the son did not perform. And that would be uh, this term right here is what we're talking about. And I'm saying, yes, the son did consider the equality he had with the father. But he did not conclude that equality with the father was something to be held on to at all costs. But the fact is, the son gave consideration. And when the Son gives consideration to His equality with God the Father, that cannot be the same thing as the Spirit considering His equality with God the Father. And certainly the Father cannot consider His equality with Himself. 
So it's, it's, it's really a straightforward argument. And so far, this is the only response been given to it, and it fails completely. So hopefully, once we demonstrate the failure of this argument, then we can maybe have someone come along and explain what's going on. <laughs> do, 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 do. I guess about 30 minutes travels fast. Okay, so let's look at uh, the text and at the... Uh, Diagram, so we can understand the grammar here, okay? So, um, who, existing in the form of God. So, who, and the form of God uh, thing is up above here in the, in the diagram. But we are down here, who, and then our verb, hegesata. And for some reason, this is giving me a really... Thick line. I need a thinner line for this one, and we'll go to a different color here. How's that? All right. Hegesata. Here is our verb. So this is this is important here. This is the the primary section of the diagram that we're looking at that we can look down below at it later on. To reflect, to consider, to give consideration is being done by the sun. Right. Then we see how the diagram here has a, the uh, infinitival phrase, ta'ainai isa theyu, theo. So to be equal with God is what is being considered. And then you have the descriptor, this term right here, harpagmon. And then we have the negative particle, uk. So, the result of the consideration is that the equality with God is not harpagmon. But you have, to have, you have to have consideration. I used an illustration. I thought it was a pretty good illustration. In fact, it is a good illustration, but it hasn't worked. Um, I said, uh, I considered running a half marathon with my wife, but realized that would be disastrous. And so I watched another episode of Stargate SG-1. <laughs> How's that? Um, same situation. I considered something, that is running a half marathon. My wife. wife just ran a half marathon. She'd been training for it. I've ridden half marathons in the past. I can't do it anymore. I've got injuries and stuff that doesn't allow that to happen. So I considered it, but I came to the conclusion that that would not be why. So just because I came to a negative conclusion doesn't mean that I did not consider. I had to consider what would be required of me to run a half marathon. And though aerobically I could do it, I might never walk again after I got done. So <laughs> not be a good idea. So that's the whole situation here too. Just because there's a negative, we have an ook, uh, and Allah, that's very common in Greek, not this, but that, just because it's a negative doesn't mean that the action didn't take place. The son considered the equality he had with God the Father, and the conclusion was it's uk harpagmon. It's not something to be held on to at all costs. Okay. Now, I suppose this would be a good time to talk a little bit about harpagmon.
Um, I was thinking back to the 1998, I believe, um, Evangelical Theological Society meeting. I think it was in Florida somewhere. It was the only one I ever went to. Uh, I presented a paper on a Jehovah's Witness topic. But I had an extensive conversation while there. It was one of the two positive things that happened during that time with Dr. Daniel Wallace. And this is what we were discussing. We spent 45 minutes standing at the NET table discussing this text uh, and its syntax and its grammar and everything related to it. It It's very enjoyable. And much of our conversation was focused upon uh, Harpagmas. It's in the accusative here. Um, And I don't remember now, I'm assuming that I wrote the article in the CRA Journal um, called Beyond the Veil of Eternity after this. I may be wrong, but, uh, you know, we're talking 25 years ago now, so getting the exact order of things is getting harder and harder to do. Anyway, I know that when I wrote that article, I sent it to Dan because I specifically interacted with his position in the article, and I wanted to make sure, because I was disagreeing with him, that we would be coming to the, that I would represent him accurately. What is very interesting, and I have not talked with Dan about this since then, Obviously, this is before 2016. And it is very clear that the position that Dan presented in his exegetical grammar at that time would be commensurate with what is called EFS today. Nobody was using that terminology, really, at at that point. Um, And so I don't know if he's changed the position. I, Knowing Dan, I don't think he would. But let me, uh, let me give you uh, his quotation that I included in my article. It goes like this. Um, after I quoted him, uh, it is interesting. Um, Dan understands the phrases, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likes of men, he understands those as circumstantial modal participles, as do I. That is, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being made in the likeness of men. And I was really interested, and I would love to find out who was in charge of the Philippians um, review in the LSB. Because the New American Standard doesn't have by. But the LSB now does. In fact, could I uh, provide you here? Here is, here is the translation I provided in my article many, many years ago. And you'll see where, how this comes out. Here's how I translate it. You must have the same mindset among yourselves that was in Christ Jesus, who although he eternally existed in the very form of God, did not consider that equality he had with God the Father something to be held on to at all costs, but instead he made himself nothing by taking on the very form of a slave, by being made in human likeness, 
and having entered into human existence, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death one dies on a cross. Because of this, God the Father exalted him to the highest place, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the mention of the exalted name of Jesus, everyone who is in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, bows the knee, and every tongue confesses, Jesus Christ is Lord, all to the glory of God the Father. So there was my uh, translation of that. I can, I can assure you uh, that uh, when this came out, there, were, there was no one banging on my door uh, to have me kicked out of the Reformed Baptist movement. <laughs> uh, it was widely uh, read and uh, accepted and used. And I was on a, a, a Lutheran uh, uh, radio program, and the, the, the host said, I, I think that's the best translation I've ever seen of Philippians 2. I think that's the, that brings it out the best of any. So it was, uh, it was well-received at the time. It would not be now. Not because I've changed, but because others have. So going back to uh, Harpag Moss here, there are, there is a, an active and a passive means of being able, you know, I think most people would be able to open that door without it squeaking, but only, only, only Dolby would, would do that. Um, sorry. We have, we have a studio audience, and I, I had just run across a picture, actually, of this gentleman sacked out on my couch uh, in, in, in my house uh, when I was doing a, a major cycling event long long ago so yeah yeah oh i yeah anyway anyhow what were we talking about moses was in the bulrushes and so okay yeah harpagmas harpagmon um the there is a passive and an active way of understanding this term so you can understand it as seizing for something trying to grab something or you can understand it as holding on to something that you already have. Now, you will find all sorts of argumentation. Uh, I started reading books on the Carmen Christian Seminary in the 1980s, and they come from a lot of different perspectives. And the less conservative a person is, the wider the possibilities of interpretation become because you don't have to work with the stricture that Scripture is consistent with itself. And so there's a lot of interpretations out there. Now what's interesting is, those that would take the idea of grasping for something, such as the New World Translation of Jehovah's Witness, um, do that to try to deny the deity of Christ, because Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the deity of Christ, and therefore they... You know, the New World Translation says he did not give consideration to a seizure, namely that he should be equal to God. I think that's the NWT rendering. I know it's did not give consideration to a seizure, which <laughs> just flows so nice and easily. Anyway, uh, that was one thing the NWT uh, translators were not concerned about is whether it flowed at all. So... Uh, but then there are Orthodox who would take that viewpoint and read it as consistent with an EFS understanding. I think that's what Dan Wallace does. Let me give you his exact words. Um, 
here's how I put it in the article. He holds the view that while form of God emphasizes the deity of Christ in no uncertain terms, hence ontological equality with the Father, the phrase equality with God should be understood to refer to something different, to the hierarchical relationship of Father and Son. Therefore, he believes the passage is saying that while eternally God, the Son did not grasp at a functional equality with the Father. He writes, quote, Although Christ was truly God, morphe theou, two things resulted. Number one, he did not attempt to outrank the Father, as it were. Compare John 14, 28 for a similar thought. The Father is greater than I am. And number two, instead, he submitted himself to the Father's will, even to the point of death on a cross. It was thus not Christ's deity that compelled his incarnation and passion, but his obedience, end quote. So as I said, this is more of a EFS understanding, or at least more consistent with an EFS understanding. And I guess I need to say it again because I keep running into people that are being lied to about me, but I don't hold the EFS and never have. If anyone tells you that I do, they don't know what they're talking about, or they're desperately dishonest, or both. <laughs> that's, that's a possibility, too. Um, but that's, that's the perspective that's there. And so I, I interacted with that. I said, uh, however, there are two reasons I prefer the interpretation given above. First, this is a poetic section. Terms are used in poetry hymns in ways that transcend the strictly grammatical usage one would find in normal prose context. While usage in other contexts might favor the active sense of grasping at something, one does not already possess. In this passage, the overall context has to take precedence. As Wallace noted above, poetic license is already present in this early hymn. Second, while Wallace's interpretation still presents the element of humility, it focuses it solely upon the humility shown in the Messiah's death on the cross. The element of humility in the incarnation is still present, but I believe the intended contrast is weakened. For the exhortation of Philippians, they voluntarily laid aside, lay, lay aside the rights that are theirs so as to serve others. Christ voluntarily makes himself nothing, and the emphasis is upon the freedom of that act. That was my response in the article 20, 25 years ago now. So, if you um, go to the commentaries, unfortunately, a great deal of time is going to be dedicated to that discussion of active and passive uses of harpogmos, harpogmon, and things like that. Not nearly as much, in my experience, is going to be dedicated to the fact that this whole thing is a sermon illustration. Have this mind in you which is also in Christ Jesus. This is in the context of exhorting the Church of Philippi to act in humility of mind, to have certain rights, but to lay those rights aside in the service of others. That's what this is all about, and that's the ultimate, I think, the ultimate priority in understanding the entirety of the Carmen Christi, uh, and context certainly shows that. So, back to the diagram. So, the Son considered the equality he had with God the Father not to be harpogmon, something to be grasped at all costs. Then, you have Allah right here. So let's look at Allah and Uk. Uk is the negative particle. In the Greek language, very often you will have not this, 
but adversative form, but something else. So he did not consider his equality a thing to be held on to at all costs, but he emptied himself. And again, I just emphasize the, this is a reflexive pronoun. So he was not emptied, but he emptied himself. I'm not saying the Father's not involved in the Incarnation. He is. Or the Spirit's not involved in the Incarnation. He is. But in different ways. In unique ways. In beautiful ways. And if your Aristotelianism causes you to change hey auton to auton and get rid of the reflexive, that's the whole thing that we're complaining about and saying you can't do that. That's, that's wrong. But the point is, here you have these. Not this, but that. So as the result of this consideration, the son concludes that his equality with God the Father is not harpagmon, but instead he empties himself, and then here's your participles, by taking the form of a servant, same term, morphane here, morphane theu, morphane dulu, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. This is the incarnation, the positive addition of that perfect human nature. It was interesting because there's another area where things have changed uh, quickly. Um, is I had, uh, here's, here's something else that Dan had said where we agreed. And it's talking about the, the means of the incarnation. The biggest difficulty with seeing Labon taking as means is that emptying is normally an act of subtraction, not addition. But the imagery should not be made to walk on all fours. As an early hymn, it would be expected to have a certain poetic license. The Philippians were told not to puff themselves up with empty glory because Christ was an example of one who had emptied his glory. If this connection is intentional, then the Carmen Christi has the following force. Do not elevate yourselves on empty glory, but follow the example of Christ who, though already elevated on God's level, emptied his glory by veiling it in humanity, to which I continued. So the means of the kenosis is the addition of a human nature, the veiling of the divine in the creaturely. This is important to understand, for many interpret Paul to mean that Christ abandons the form of God, rather than seeing this as an addition of the human nature to the eternal divine nature that was Christ. It is this addition that veils the form of God, while there are certainly many who see this passage teaching that Christ did indeed lay aside the form of God, the words of Paul do not present such a concept. Wrote this long before people started lying about me <laughs> about it, but that's because they don't do their homework. So there you go. Uh, so we are emphasizing and must emphasize, as Dan Wallace emphasized, uh, the fact that he continues to be in the, the form of God, but he takes on the form of a servant, and being made in the likeness of men, and therefore he humbles himself. There it is again with the reflexive pronoun. He humbles himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Get this out of the way here. Thanatu de staru, even the cross death. Even the cross death. It's very blunt and straightforward. So, 
Here in the diagram is our adversative Allah. Here you have the other uh, actions being taken here. And the, um, the diagram seems to agree with uh, my understanding here, because it puts Labon and Ganamanos uh, in the same way, by being, he humbled himself, how? By taking on a form of servant, by being made like some men. Uh, and this is the opposite. This is, this is still the result of his consideration. He considered that equality. It's not something to be held on to at all costs, but incarnation. Incarnation. That's what he does. So, in answer to um, Mr. Smith, Paul is telling us that the Son did not regard consider. He tells us about an action the Son did not perform. That is simply not true. And hopefully we all can see that now. I hope Mr. Smith will go, yes, I was wrong. You're right. He did hey gay sata. But the conclusion of that action was uk harpagman. Ta ainai isa theo. So the equality he had with the father was not something to be held on to. That's the result of the consideration. It was almost, and, and you know, maybe he just didn't express himself clearly, even though I kept going back <laughs> and explaining it, and he kept doubling down. But if you simply said, if you simply had, uk hegesa ta, period, move on, okay, then it would say he did not give consideration, but it doesn't tell you what he didn't give consideration of. It would not tell you how he evaluated his equality with God the Father. It would not give you the basis for why he then engages in the act of self-emptying by the incarnation. It would leave everything unanswered. So when someone says, well, but, but ooks right there. Yeah, but you've got to allow it to be in the sentence. And it is, it is saying this equality with God, that, that, that infinitival phrase, is not something to be held on to at all costs. That's what it's functioning. That's straightforward. That's, there's no other way of looking at it. <laughs> you can't, I, I mean, unless you're going to, you know, go the New World Translation way, the Aryan way, something like that. But that's the only way you can read it in, a, in an Orthodox sense, is to understand that that's how it's functioning here. Okay? So, hopefully, we have, we've, we've covered things here. Let me see if there's anything else in... Um, so I ask, how do you validly move from Paul's statement about what the Son did not do to a conclusion about what the sin, Son did do? Can we all see where the problem is now? I'm not going from what the Son did not do. The conclusion of his consideration was that his equality with God the Father was not something to be held on to at all costs. That's the conclusion. But the fact is, this is a positive action on the part of the Son that is unique to the Son and cannot be done by the Father or the Spirit. That does not result in tritheism. You folks have just been seemingly so quickly um, trained uh, to, to come up with these responses without thinking them through. This is biblical material here, okay? and. What we're going to see, what you see later on down here, I can scroll down and you can see it, but 
the Carmen Christie is going to identify Jesus as Yahweh. It's going to use the text from Isaiah 45 and, and apply it directly to Christ in the context of the Father and the Son and the revelation of God's triune glory. So there's, there's no introdu- introduction of, of multiple gods or anything else. The fact that Father, Son, Spirit are identified as Yahweh, you can't, you can't break that. You can't get outside of that. You don't have three different Yahwehs or anything like that. But you have to, you end up fundamentally gutting the richness of the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit and the richness of the incarnation itself when you insist on utilizing philosophical categories that Paul and the early church are not functioning on. They're not functioning on those, those grounds at all. Okay? So, uh, so, how do you move from Paul's statement of what the Son did not do? It's not the Son did not do. It's what the Son did do. So I'm not moving from that statement. I'm simply saying this text teaches that the Son considered his equality with God the Father and made decisions based upon that consideration. First decision, not to be held on to at all costs. Second decision, emptied himself by taking on the form of servant. That's what the text says. You can stand on your head, you can spin around, you can, you can get a tonsure cut and, and wear uh, Dominican robes. Not going to change anything. It's right there in Greek. It's right there in English. By the way, some people were asking about some of the translational, uh, some different translations. And the... Um, the King James thought it not robbery. Obviously, you know, robbery. I mean, that's in the that, that's in the semantic range of harpagmos. Uh, something to be to seize or something. So robbery, if, if you're not supposed to be doing, because you could have a you could have a positive seizing at something that's not illegal, so it wouldn't have to be robbery. So it's a it's an interesting choice. But notice, it says, thought it not robbery. So that's their, that's their actual translation of uk harpagmon he gesata. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Um, I don't know, it's a little difficult. Um, it's not quite as smooth, maybe. Um, but it, at least it, it is interesting... Uh, that the knot is being directly attached to Harpagmon, uh, rather than did not think, as in he didn't engage in act, at activity. That's the, that's, the, that's the fundamental error that Smith has made, is the text is saying that the son did not engage in the activity of Hegesata. No, he did. It's the conclusion of that activity that is in view when it says not something to be grasped or held onto at all costs. So, yeah, translations try to find ways around um, rather stilted English renderings. Um, 
and every trans every translation committee has to struggle with that. How how literally are you going to be? How far are you willing to go to try to smooth something out? Because the the more you smooth it out, the more you may be leaving something out or inserting something in that isn't there. That's that is one of the issues that we that we have to deal with in um, in something like this. Um, so. I, I really hope, even though we've, we've had to use, I've tried to make sure to explain each of the Greek words when I'm using it as to what it's being translated as. Um, and I, I, I want everyone to understand what's going on in the text. Um, so, John, do you get it? Did you, do you get it? You're multitasking. All right. Okay, all right. Because I, I figured if you get it, <laughs> that means I did it well. <laughs> no, no. I'll watch it. I'll review it later. Rich is telling me to be nice to someone. Can you believe that? How does that work? I'm not even sure how that works. Anyway, I honestly, seriously, seriously. Um, repetitio mater memore. Uh, yeah, repetition is mother memory. Yeah, you go watch it again and you'll... You'll get it the second time around. Um, these philosophical and theological debates, there are, there are some people who engage in them just simply because they really engage, love engaging in them, and I am not one of them. Um, I think that if you're going to invest your life energy in uh, debate and dialogue, the ultimate goal must be the benefit of the church, or you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. And believe you me, if we were in this ministry for position and money and funding and networking, I wouldn't be engaging this topic at all. It has not been fun to be lied about and gossiped about and canceled by people you thought were your good friends. Uh, That has not been enjoyable. Um, And then to see that not, you know, they would never, I, I, I cannot imagine any Greek professor that would walk in here and say, no, that's all wrong. Uh, I, I can't, can't see it. Even if they take a different interpretation, maybe an EFS interpretation, they'd have to say, well, yeah, if, if you understand this, is, yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, on the issue of J.E. Smith's claim, that claim has been refuted. It's, that's, not, that's not a debatable issue. Just on a linguistic ground, the son engaged in the action. That's, we've, we've demonstrated that. So that's, that's done. But the, the result of that, what that means, what that must mean for our theology, and whether we will, and whether our theological conclusions come from the text, or whether our theological systems are going to filter what can come from the text is what I am most concerned about. Because I am seeing people who are so dedicated to a philosophical set of metaphysical assumptions, which 
you know, fundamentally, Aristotle was wrong on, a, on the, whole, the whole basic nature of the universe. Okay? So, he was, so his God was nowhere near the God of the Bible. And despite Thomas's great intellect, you can't fix defects like that. But when those metaphysical constraints end up appearing in the interpretation of the biblical text, that is where sola scriptura dies. That's where it dies. And I've seen that for decades. The people that I'm arguing with have not seen that for decades and have not been dealing with that and just seemingly are not willing to listen and to learn in the process. So, there is the, uh, there is the text. There is the argument. It's right there in front of you. And so, laying that aside, I simply want to ask my Thomistically-minded brothers, how do you deal, let me put it this way, why should any minister of the gospel standing in the pulpit on this coming Sunday that opens this text, does their homework, Goes through all of this. You don't have to project it up on a screen. But you understand it so you can communicate it to your people. So you can handle the word aright. That's why you do the work of exegesis. So that you can handle the word aright, show the honor to it as God's word. Right? Why would any minister standing before his people, opening up this text, this coming Sunday, why would I have to introduce my people to an even further from the inspired words of Scripture concept to try to explain this text to keep it consistent with my theological system? And I refer to the doctrine of appropriation. Why would I have to add even something further that has nothing to do with what Paul's saying to the Philippians? Just to maintain a system. And it doesn't actually maintain the system. Simply saying that there are, there are activities that God engages in that it's more appropriate to refer to the Father as the fountainhead of the divine decree and the Son as the accomplisher of redemption and the Spirit as the applier. And the only reason this happens, because they're not, you can't actually tell anything about Father, Son, and Spirit by their actions, because they're all the same actions, because ISO, inseparable operation. And so you can't ignore the fact that the Bible actually does it, though. <laughs> and so, well, it's the concept of appropriation. So what, what we're doing is, is, is the Bible will apply these things to the individual persons to show us more clearly the internal relationships between the divine persons. That's what the Bible says we're supposed to be going for? That's somehow going to... I, I thought it was growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and sanctification and stuff like that, but I am absolutely convinced that the health and future of the church 
is dependent upon the people of God being taught to listen, obey, and love God's Word. Not our philosophical systems that we use to try to fit everything into nice, neat little packages that fits our system and end up leaving out some of the most beautiful elements that are found in Scripture itself. I am literally seeing men who are hesitant to use biblical language because it might be understood in a non-Thomistic fashion. And I say a pox on you. You will not last long. This will not end well. I'm still calling you my brother. You may not me, but I'm still calling you my brother. I'm just trying to warn you about where this is going to lead. And, oh, you're saying, we're all become Roman Catholics. I didn't say that. There are a lot of, a lot of places to stop on the way to Canterbury or to Constantinople or before you cross the Tiber River. But what I do know is that when you engage the text the way we did over the past hour, you can do so consistently believing in Sola Scriptura and Tota Scriptura. When you stop believing those things, you will not be able to continue to do what we just did. You will have to go another direction. And that will be a major problem. That will be a major problem. The point about heading towards Rome is our warning is you're in the middle of the Tiber, turn around. Well, I am sure that there are many people um, who, look, in my experience, the vast majority of the people that I have spoken to who have converted to Roman Catholicism, and I have spoken to more of those people than all of my critics combined. There's no question about that. There really isn't. Um, the people I've talked to did not start out going that direction. And in fact, when they woke up that first morning realizing, I really don't believe this stuff anymore, they had been on that path for a long time and didn't realize it. And there wasn't anybody to warn them. And one of my concerns is, some of you all, you may, you may stay, you're, you're so tried and true, you'll stay in your Reformed Baptist Presbyterian um, close uh, forever. But in the process of being in those clothes and taking the positions you take, you may help others to get out without even realizing, without even recognizing, without wanting to do it. But you might end up doing it. And all because you just won't listen to warning. You won't, won't go, yeah, you know, we've got to start first and foremost with what the text actually says and derive our beliefs therefrom. That's vitally important. I think I have covered everything I wanted to cover. I was a little bit concerned. And I, you know what's going to happen is afterwards I'm going to, I'm going to um, go, oh, there was that. No, there was that. Um, 
but hopefully with some level of clarity, I've been able to communicate to you what's going on here. Hopefully you are just as amazed as I hopefully will always be at this ancient fragment of a hymn of the early church, at what it says. But sometimes you have to dig down when someone comes up with an idea that honestly I had never heard anyone come up with before. And that was what uh, J.E. Smith did with, uh, nope, the sun did not perform this action. Nope, the sun did. And we have demonstrated that now, and hopefully with clarity. So with that, thank you very much for watching The Dividing Line today. There's lots of stuff going on in the world, lots of stuff we could have been commenting upon. But once in a while, you just got to dig into the text and, um, and take care of business. So that's what we did today. We'll see you next time. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.